This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Bold Type Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT by Elena Konis. Historian Elena Konis's sweeping narrative follows DDT as generations of Americans struggled to make sense of the notorious chemicals' risks and benefits. In an age of spreading misinformation on issues including pesticides, vaccines, and climate change, Konis shows that we need new ways of communicating about science. As Scott W. Stern wrote in The New Republic, as Elena Konis details in her monumentally disturbing new book, DDT remains in our soil, our water, the animals that surround us, and even within our very bodies. One of Konis's greatest achievements is to put a human face on this science of risk. How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT by Elena Konis. Out now from Bold Type Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In September 2020, the pandemic was ending and upending lives everywhere and exposing the depth and breadth of inequalities, both local and global. But the media in the United Kingdom trained its spotlight upon a more pressing matter. It was announced that the BBC singers would not be singing the imperial anthems Rule Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory. London's woke, cosmopolitan, educated elites were once again looking down at and canceling the left-behind common man, disdainful of his customs. The tabloids juiced the outrage. The history of the British Empire was thus rendered into a skirmish in the culture war, much like the history of racism and slavery here in the United States. For opponents and proponents alike, invoking colonization and decolonization has too often become, above all else, a battle fought in the symbolic register. Symbolism and statues no doubt matter, but as my guest today, Kojo Karam, writes, quote, Racism did not spread because of an inherent fear and hatred of people of different appearance, but because there was a need to gain more resources and wealth, and that required making others disposable, particularly those who inconveniently lived on the lands where those resources were located. Empire mattered tremendously, and its legacy fundamentally defines our world today. But relegating the politics of colonialism exclusively to questions of pop culture, representation, and curricula only serves the material interests of the capitalists who preserved and even strengthened their one-time colonial prerogative through the imposition of neoliberalism. In the mid-20th century, colonialism's long-standing capitalist plunder was challenged by decolonization as third-worldists from Jamaica to Tanzania and beyond attempted to remake the world to secure not only national sovereignty, but also the sort of economically just world system that would make that sovereignty real. The third-worldists were defeated by the neoliberal counteroffensive, which ensured that newly independent nations could not be substantively free. 
We know about Thatcher breaking the miners' union and about Reagan crushing the air traffic controllers. But neoliberalism was also a reorganization of capitalism at the global level that ensured that national sovereignty would preclude newly independent nations from exercising any real economic power. That accelerating mobility and power of capital, it not only crushed third-worldist aspirations, it also unleashed capitalist predations, briefly checked by the post-war settlement against the metropole, disintegrating the welfare state and labor union power in countries like Britain. As Karam writes, quote, Taking the story of the aftermath of empire in Britain from the symbolic discussion of flags and statues toward material issues like offshoring wealth troubles the presumption that true patriots defend the legacy of empire, while those who, quote, hate Britain are the ones who want to challenge it. This same system that today, once again, sends formerly colonized countries into a new debt crisis has also blocked efforts at economic and social transformation in the world system's core. Most notably, the imposition of austerity in the wake of the 2008 economic crisis facilitated the rise of today's nationalist far-right who purvey a politics that scapegoats migrants for the very real sense of powerlessness that neoliberal capitalism has imposed upon people everywhere, including, of course, above all else, upon those people forced to migrate from the post-colony to the post-metropole. Today's episode is my interview with Kojo Karam about his wonderful book, Uncommonwealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. It's an incredible history that details how the British Empire was fundamentally a corporate one, run for the purposes of material plunder, legitimated through a racist alibi of civilizational hierarchy, tutelage, and uplift. The British Empire, in other words, is a Frankenstein's monster that has now been unleashed against the country that made it. I can't overemphasize how great this book is, and the prose, too. Wow. Before we get rolling, this podcast takes a lot of work. You might have guessed that from me, my producer, others. And the only reason we can put it out there for everyone to listen to, free with no paywall, is because those of you who can afford to contribute make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of any amount at all, even $1 a month. We will email you our weekly newsletter or more like bi-weekly this July and August, but usually weekly. The newsletters make excellent companions to my interviews. You can peruse them all for free at thedigradio.com, but I think you want them delivered into your email inbox. If so, please contribute, and we will do that. We will send it to your email inbox. What is more, if you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a great book or books in the mail, or a dig tote bag or dig mug. If you can afford to, please make a contribution now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I get an email with the name of each new contributor, and each and every time, that really does warm my heart. One of those email inbox dopamine blasts. I had no idea that I would be able to do this for a living when I started the podcast in 2016, so I am immensely grateful that we found an audience and an audience that has kept the show funded. So thank you. And a reminder, I'll be at the Socialism 2022 conference hosting a live episode of The Dig. And that live episode is an interview with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, 
Robin D.G. Kelly and Femi Taiwo on just the entirety of this present moment. It's going to be good. Hope to see you in Chicago September 2nd through 5th. I'm also doing two other events at the Socialism Conference. I'll be hosting a screening and discussion with Jesse Sharkey from the Chicago Teachers Union of When We Fight, a short documentary about the 2019 L.A. Teachers Strike by filmmaker Yael Bridge. And I'll also be doing a discussion on the relationship between intellectual and organizing work, sponsored by N Plus One, with Gabe Winant, Donna Merch, and Mia Inoue. And also, lastly, we'll be having some sort of gathering for Dig listeners at some point. So, hope to see you there. Register now at socialismconference.org. Okay, here's Kojo Karam, an academic at Birkbeck College, University of London, and the author of Uncommonwealth, Britain in the Aftermath of Empire. Kojo Karam, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. This idea that nations follow a linear path of development from poor backward agrarian societies to rich modern industrial ones, that's for a long time been a really powerful narrative, this this idea that poor countries will, over time, become like rich ones. But recently, the idea that there's any sort of progressive trajectory to history at all seems increasingly improbable. And particularly problems associated with poor countries now obviously plague rich ones. What purposes, though, did this myth of linear progress serve during the colonial era and in the immediate post-colonial period? And then how, at present, is the unraveling of that myth being processed across the post-colonial metropoles of Europe, and, and in Britain in particular? You know, in the book on Commonwealth, where I kind of write about this question, I think I start off with the ubiquitous nature of the idea of development that we're all confronted with, which really stretches across different traditions on the political spectrum, you know, in Marxism, we have our idea of, you know, the historical conception of history and then moving along this line of progressive linearity, you know, in more mainstream liberal circles, you know, the emergence of development as a mechanism for international governance is, you know, a real marker of the kind of post-45 international, um, institutionalized international legal order from the United Nations to the variety of different human rights charities. Um, this idea of development, I think, really was useful for uh, kind of obfuscating the differences that are clearly visible between what we now call the Global South, or was then called the Third World, you know, what's been called so many other names from backward to savage to uncivilized in, in historical moments, and the, the material circumstances that we see in the quote-unquote developed world. Um, the idea that this was simply a problem of time, this was something that was going to be bracketed by the movement of time, that the developing world was moving towards the developed world, I think allowed for the minimization and the masking of the systems of extractive violence that allowed the so-called developed world to continue to profit from the labor and resources of the developing world. So I think it's been very useful. It's allowed for the translation of what was once kind of faux scientific 
categorizations of hierarchy between peoples around the world. Here we're thinking about 19th century eugenicist classifications of different human beings according to their racial background. That was one frame for understanding these differences globally. And then that's been translated into the language of development, but of course, minimizing and masking all of the ugliness of that former discourse and everything that was associated with 19th century racism, especially when it then mutated into the kind of internal racism of the genocidal policies of European fascism. And so I think that the, the, the language of development has been useful, like I say, for maintaining that difference between the globe, but masking a lot of the violence that produces that difference. But I think now we are seeing the failure of that narrative to really play itself out and instead seeing what I try and call in the book, following very much from M.A. and Suzanne Césaire, this idea of the colonial boomerang, the blowback, the ricocheting of those mechanisms of violence that happen in the developing world, now framing how the economy, how society, how politics functions in places like the United Kingdom, in places like the United States. We're starting to see a new understanding of what the world is going to look like in the 21st century. Who was Césaire and what what was it writing from mid-20th century Martinique? What was it that he perceived about colonialism's impact on metropoles that were supposed to be the subjects of history rather than its objects? Aimé Césaire is a fascinating character. He was a poet. He was a philosopher. He was a politician towards the end of his life. You know, he's often cited as, as as an intellectual mentor for Franz Fanon. Of course, there's some complications there as all intellectual mentorships <laughs> produce. But, the, you know, as, as another um, Martinican post-colonial scholar, um, Aimé Césaire was really one of the, I think, the most insightful voices for understanding this dynamic that the relationship between the colonial metropole and the colonial hinterland produces. Um, this idea of the boomerang that he introduces and that's been taken up by a variety of different scholars across, across different traditions. You know, Michel Foucault talks about the the boomerang when he describes how the, the policing violence of the French state in Algeria is informing the policing and security measures that are being taken place in France. Hannah Arendt talks about the boomerang at one point, despite her critiques of Fanon and that kind of post-colonial moment. And basically what Cesare is describing with the boomerang is the idea that the violence, the practices, the ways of understanding humanity that the European colonial project imposes upon the colonial hinterlands doesn't simply stay there. It doesn't simply get imprisoned in those areas, but it seeps back, it blows back into the mainland. And for him, he was primarily thinking about the emergence of European fascism and the way in which the systematic dehumanization of huge populations, particularly in colonial Africa, thinking about you know the German project in Namibia, thinking about the Italian project in Abyssinia, starts to produce a logic, a, a, a framework, a philosophy of humanity that influences how people are governed and people are divided and people are eventually exterminated, even in places like Italy and Germany and the rest of Europe in the mid-20th century. Césaire's understanding of that, I think, is a really useful launching point to thinking about the changing global economic framework that we're facing here in the 21st century. And that's what I try to do a little bit in Commonwealth is look at how 
those systems of economic violence that we would associate with the colonial and immediate post-colonial period in places like Jamaica or in Nigeria, Ghana and Singapore don't simply reside in those areas, but are starting to influence, blow back and undermine the way in which the so-called mid-20th century post-war consensus, as it's known in the UK, that uh, social welfare safety net um, that was supposed to have been um, constructed in that mid-20th century moment, that has been undermined, that's been cut from within by the aftermath of those colonial violences that occurred over in in the post-colonies after the end of the Second World War. And specifically, that particular boomerang that you're discussing is is that capitalism reorganized in response to decolonization in very specific ways. And the result was this generalization of capitalist discipline, making that discipline unhinged from either the direct rule once exercised by colonial states or even the indirect rule exercised through coups that accompanied and immediately followed decolonization. How did the forces of capital that once exercised power through and with the colonial state, and we're going to get into the complications of what that looked like in Britain, but how did that get turned against the metropole because of the way that capital responded to decolonization? Absolutely. I think the first thing to really stress, because it's something that is is kind of washed away a little bit in our understandings of coloniality and decoloniality over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, is the centrality of the challenge that it posed to capitalism. You know, we have sometimes for very significant reasons moved towards more understandings of things like the coloniality of power, the the way in which coloniality informs our, our visual processes, our understandings of desire. But when we try and return back to that mid-20th century moment of formal decolonization, as you might call it, um, that mass wave of sovereignty that was proliferated across all of the different continents in the aftermath of the Second World War, we can see how much of a fundamental challenge it was to capitalism when we look at the way in which, particularly in the British example, which was even more than the French or the Belgian or other European empires had really mastered the art of the private public company partnership and essentially outsourcing a lot of its imperial violence to companies stretching from the Levant Company to the Hudson Bay Company that ruled North America for so long, the East India Company, perhaps the most famous of all, and then towards the you know the 20th century, the Royal Niger Company and the, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, these companies operating across, across one jurisdiction during the era of empire. But then when you get decolonization, you obviously have the proliferation of sovereignty and all of a sudden these companies are facing, whether it's um, tax demands, whether it's labor regulations, whether it's the possibility of a government exerting its claim to permanent sovereignty over national resources, they have all these different challenges from all these different governments that they have to respond to. And so what I think we see first in the immediate aftermath is the support of the interests of these companies by governments like the United Kingdom, which takes the form of you know direct coup d'etats at times. And then we start to see a lot more of what the political economist and historian Quinn Slobodian, I think, describes wonderfully as this idea of the encasing of capital, the placing of the interests of global capitalism in this protective layer of 
legal and uh, political protection, which allows capitalism to be able to operate across vast waves of the population, whilst understanding that the local government, regardless of who's been elected, is essentially defanged in its attempts to try and challenge the interests of these companies. And we can see this, the most um, kind of skillful modern instantiation would be the investor state dispute resolution tribunals. We can look at the way in which the institutions of international law, like the IMF, the WTO, the World Bank, were repurposed over the latter half of the 20th century. And we can look at the way in which structural adjustment programs and conditional loan agreements, again, handcuff governments in terms of the political and economic choices that they could make. And we can see um, the empowering of global capitalism at the expense of the potential of the immediately decolonized countries, which I'm arguing the book, I think, has had a consequence on how capitalism functions, even in the former heart of the European imperial world, which, of course, you know, in the 19th and 18th century was the United Kingdom. Now, its government essentially operates almost as though it's handcuffed in terms of the challenges, the, the ability to challenge global capitalism, you know, not in the same way as you know, what we might see in the West Coast of Africa, but in terms of where those movements, where those dynamics are exchanging between these two spaces, um, I try and trace, you know, my own relationship and the movement between growing up between Ghana and the United Kingdom um, simultaneously, as seeing the um, shifts in the way political governance functions, not moving in that linear path of progression that the developmental scholars told us that it would do, and instead perhaps moving the other way in that boomerang style that Césaire describes. Barbara Fields famously wrote, quote, Probably a majority of American historians think of slavery in the United States as primarily a system of race relations, as though the chief business of slavery were the production of white supremacy rather than the production of cotton, sugar, rice, and tobacco. That line immediately came to my mind when I read, you write, quote, as important as ideological justifications for racial hierarchies became to the project of colonization, the British Empire was not just a 500-year world tour of being mean to brown people. It was about extracting resources and hoarding wealth. It was a global system of cultivated and coordinated armed robbery. How is it then that the history of colonialism and debates over its legacies, both for liberals and leftists who are critical of it and conservatives who revere it. How is it that this has been rendered so often into a symbolic battlefield in the culture war? And how does that dematerialization of our understanding of the history of colonialism dematerialize our understanding of what decolonization meant and also what it might mean? I think that, you know, I'll speak particularly to the UK context in relationship to this question. I think that a recent immersion or eruption of interest in questions of decolonization, you know, outside of the academy, um, in terms of the broader general public was, you know, the British response to the global Black Lives Matter uprising that, you know, particularly followed the, the death of George Floyd, although it of course had been bubbling you know, ever since Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Eric Garner. When, you know, at, at, at the core of it, that's not immediately apparent why that connection would emerge, why that would be the, 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 the space through which 
the confrontation with Britain's racial history would immediately um, take place. And, you know, I think it was very much spurred on by the pulling down of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol, um, you know, who, you know, was uh, one of these decorated imperial philanthropists who, you know, particularly in in Colston's uh, example, had cultivated much of his wealth from being the director of the Royal Africa Company, which was, of course, had the monopoly on the trade of slaves in the 17th century. That made the question of empire and decolonization a question of, you know, kind of where do you stand on the whole Black Lives Matter moment? Where do you stand on race relations? Um, You know, people wanted to signify that, you know, they are a good ally in the current um, parlance, that they would, you know, show an interest in decolonizing cultural institutions, everything from museums to art galleries to schools, obviously curricula and academia. And, um, you know, if people wanted to show that they were, you know, against all of this kind of racial identity politics issues, then they would talk about how this is erasing history and about how this is, you know, racial resentment of, um, you know, black populations against the cultural achievements of white Britain. And immediately the entire conversation around empire became imprisoned within that that you know that that same set of references and the book that I wrote was really a response to that moment and to try and bring back you know what I consider to be the primary driver behind all imperial endeavors um, particularly the British imperial endeavor with the way in which it was so central to how global capitalism has developed over you know the last three four hundred years and of course, that that fundamental driver is material. You know, I put it quite crudely at times, but I was like, nobody gets in a boat <laughs> in the 1600s and sails to India or Africa to give them some Jane Austen. Like, it's not cultural at the motivation, and it's not all the way over there as well to even to um, to, to racially abuse people like that. That the the way in which race was weaponized and cultivated through the imperial project was to delegitimize the human obligations that would otherwise have governed trade between people across international borders to make people's claims to their property null and void and render the idea of the land that they stood on as being terra nullius. That was the way in which they were racially dehumanized, you know, to make whatever contracts and treaties have been signed with um, local leaders not respectable in the eyes of the the traditional legal institutions because of their racial background. That was the way the race was weaponized. And so all of it had a role in facilitating what I consider to be the core function of empire, which is the extraction, transfer and accumulation of resources across vast international spaces. And so by bringing that back in, I thought that this may not only give us a broader understanding of the challenge of decolonization in the 20th century to global capitalism, and therefore a broader understanding of how capitalism has reshaped itself, as you say, in the latter half of the 20th century and early 21st century. But I thought that it would also play a useful role um, in terms of the maker political intervention in this the broader culture wars that we have, you know, in the UK and of course you have it there in the US as well, in making the idea of understanding how empire shaped the function of the Westminster state and the United Kingdom, shaped the way in which um, Britain's overseas tax territories function in terms of 
the, the, the offshoring of wealth shapes the way in which um, our understandings of the company uh, um, function within our, within our commercial court system, we might be able to break through the kind of us and them binary identity politics framing of the conversation around empire that the kind of culture wars decolonized moment in the in the general public has really really advanced over here and i think quite similar in the u.s let's turn to some of the history you write quote rather than saying britain had an empire it would be more accurate to say that the empire had britain as the british political entity was largely born of and sustained by its imperial project one thing you note for example was that the very acts of union that brought scotland and england together only happened after Scotland's own colonial company failed to establish a colony in what is now Panama. But explain your broader argument here. Why why is the very history of Britain impossible to imagine with the British Empire? There's not some Britain that precedes the empire. I mean, there's obviously concepts of Britain, you know, that the idea of Britannia stretching back until Roman times. But in terms of this unified single jurisdictional space, this single nation state that we've come to understand Britain to be, this is not a history that precedes the imperial project. You know, by the time that we get the 1707 Act of the Union between Scotland and England, not only is that driven by the failure of Scotland's imperial project in what they called New Caledonia, which leads to Scottish nobles being tempted by the potential wealth that is on offer in the English imperial project and more agreeable towards a unification of the two otherwise not only distinct, but often usually warring states that they had been for the previous four or five hundred years, um, often in direct conflict with each other. This unification comes about because of the potential that is offered by the imperial project. At the time of the Act of the Union, England is already a colonial project. It already has a colonial relationship with Barbados, with Jamaica. Um, it has the Virginia slave colonies in the United States. It already has slave forts in, you know, what is now modern day Ghana. You know, the reality is that the, the legal constitutional relationship between a place like Britain and Jamaica predates the legal constitutional relationship in terms of the act of the union between England and Scotland. And so if the unification of the two largest nations in the union that we now call the United Kingdom uh, of Great Britain is produced by the colonial project, I think that we can't then distance and disconnect what we consider to be the nation state of Britain with this history of empire. And I think, you know, and this is, you know, myself following the likes of Tom Nairn and Perry Anderson, I mean, I think that there's no coincidence that with the collapse and defeats, I think we can say, you know, more provocatively of the British Empire in the mid-20th century and it's falling away, it's no surprise that we are now seeing over the, the decades that follow the fracturing and the pulling apart of that union. Now it is no longer anchored by that thing that brought it together in the first place, which is the imperial project. Scottish independence, Sinn Féin gaining ground, Welsh nationalists, and then in the in the old colonial centre, Brexiteers calling for this return to a mythic Little England. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, immediately we know we can think about Scottish devolution that, it, that they were just produced, you know, in 1998. So we get the establishment of 
independent parliaments and assemblies in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, but that has not been enough to quell the kind of movement towards independence. And of course, there was the Scottish independence referendum of 2014 that, you know, surprised everyone by looking like it was going to win for a second, then it narrowly loses. But now, you know, we're at the, the precipice of, of another referendum, according to the Scottish National Party, who keep getting elected by ever-increasing majorities, despite having them been in governments for years. So I think that speaks to a particular feeling of of how Scottish population might feel about the union, and we might see that play out with this referendum that's supposed to have been that's supposed to be promised for um, October 2023. But of course, there's a huge standoff between Westminster and Holyrood, so that's that's still to be seen. But I think the point that I am trying to make is that in 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 the United Kingdom, we often think about Britain as a bounded, bordered and isolated island nation. You know, we have a very insular national story where what happened in British history is what's happened on this on this island, which we imagine has existed as a single unit throughout time immemorial, you know. So we talk about the British history, that's Henry VIII, that's the gunpowder plot, that's the Battle of Britain, that's, you know, World War II, that's Winston Churchill, this insular story. And, you know, what happened in... British Jamaica, British Barbados, you know, the Cayman Islands, what happened in Nigeria, what happened in all these other territories, Uganda, Kenya, this is not part of the British national story. And I tried to trouble that by by making it clear that this idea of the British nation was always a global entity. It was always this imperial realm in the language of um, the Elizabethan age. You know, and I think when you go back to pre-decolonization, you know, people like David Edgerton do this wonderfully in, in his book, and you look at the language of British politicians, the British monarchy, even as late as 1940, 1945, they're always talking about this British empire. This, that we are an empire, that we are, there is the, it's not Great Britain, Little Britain, that for the Second World War, it was the British Empire calling upon all of its resources, including over a million um, volunteers from India, the largest volunteer force that's fought in any war. So yeah, making that global understanding of Britain, you know, not in the in the ways that uh, the Conservative Party might want to talk about global Britain and you know facilitating modes of extraction, but understanding that kind of the way in which British history doesn't, you know, it's tied in and is and it, and is anchored upon this this colonial project. I think is a, is a really useful way for understanding what's happening in Britain in 2022. And you write quote. At the turn of the 20th century, real questions were being asked by leading politicians as to what distinctions, if any, existed between the British state and the wider empire. For some of the most influential figures in the land, Britain's future depended on its ability to turn the empire into a single federated state. This is a fascinating moment in history. And you write that federationists like Joseph Chamberlain weren't just concerned with keeping the empire together, but also, as we were discussing a few moments back, with keeping the United Kingdom united. And as we were just discussing, they people like Chamberlain weren't wrong. What motivated those, or what various motivations animated this push for imperial federation? And then why did the topic of federation emerge at the moment in imperial history when it, when it did? Yeah, so I think that this is a really fascinating and often forgotten moment in British in British political history. This is a moment that, you know, kind of really starts to bubble up in the 
mid 19th century and you know kind of takes a a more concentrated form as you start getting into the later later parts of that century and the early 20th century with with people like Chamberlain where there was this movement which again also stretched across different political traditions of thinking about essentially dispensing with the idea of this formal constitutional separation between the British mainland and the British Empire and creating a kind of federal constitutional framework that could encapsulate, you know, the most kind of vigorous form of imperial federation, I think it's really interesting, was often usually tied specifically to the white settler colonies. So thinking about extending this idea of Britain to at least, you know, Australia and New Zealand, South Africa and Canada, but also there was some calls and movements as well to expand it to, you know, the broader empire to, you know, the role, the specific role that India played in in the in the British imagination, as well as um, some of the more lucrative colonies in Africa and the Caribbean. You know, these places had their own imperial federation leagues that were organizing and advocating for this movement. And, you know, in terms of its political champion towards the turn of the 20th century, um, Joseph Chamberlain, um, who uh, perhaps is most famous for being father of um, Neville Chamberlain, who's most famous for essentially fumbling the response of the initial part of the Second World War and having to give rise to, to, to Winston Churchill. But Churchill himself described Joseph Chamberlain as the, the man who made the weather in his words, you know, one of the most influential politicians of the first half of the 20th century in terms of British politics. And Chamberlain is an industrialist who starts off as a liberal, that's how he enters politics, but it's on this question of the um, framing of imperial rule that he then transitions into essentially being a Tory for the rest of his career and, you know, becoming a minister of state for empire. And he is... um, in terms of that relationship between the fragmentation of the Union and the constitutional relationship that Britain has with its other colonies, you know, Chamberlain splits from the Liberals on this issue of home rule for Ireland, which he sees as the first step towards the breakup of the United Kingdom. And he may prove to be true 100 years later. And this question of allowing this separation, um, whether it's uh, formal, constitutional, or simply rhetorical, between Britain and the territories around the world that it, that it governs and profits from, is for him a real failing in the potential of what Britain could be, and a real concern about how Britain might survive the 20th century as it sees the emergence of larger, more economically dynamic federations, including Germany, following Bismarck, and of course, most most famously and most clearly to, to your listeners, the, the United States. Um, the emergence of these of the, of these of these federal countries troubles Chamberlain and he sees it as a real weakness of the British political class to not recognize its potential of federalizing its territories and becoming this global state rather than a um a small state with a global empire. You know, this is something that he kind of draws upon from a lot of the writers and um, people like Froude and people like Robert C- John Robert Seeley in the mid-20th, mid-19th century. Robert Seeley's got the famous line where he describes the state of mind of the kind of British elite as as though we we seem to have taken over the world in a fit of absence of mind. And so this kind of 
ignorance and amnesia um, about Britain's imperial um, scope is, again, a real blind spot in terms of what Britain could be. Um, it sounds kind of farcical now. But it, but, but, it la- but it later serves certain interests by facilitating innocence, a sense of innocence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then I think in terms of our contemporary amnesia around empire, our amnesia about what happened in Britain's name, by British actors, by British companies um, all across the world, this separation, this um, one-step removal between the British state and the British story and the, the global scope of empire, this outsourcing of the projects of empire to your East India companies, to your Hudson Bay companies, to your Royal Niger companies, has been very useful for facilitating a kind of mass amnesia for the fact that Britain never was an empire, which is something that I think anybody who has visited Britain or spent significant time here will really be be struck by. You know, there's there's a kind of general understanding that British Empire happened and something we should be proud of. That's what we're often told by um, our, our political leaders. But in terms of where was the British Empire, when did places leave the British Empire, when did they go into decolonization, what's who's in the, the current Commonwealth, which is this kind of ghostly specter of imperial rule that continues to operate in the international arena. Um, there's a real, you know, kind of mass amnesia about that. At the last Commonwealth Games, there was a there was a poll taken in, in the United Kingdom, um, which found that one in five people was unable to name even one country that's in the Commonwealth. You know, so that includes, you know, no one was able to mention Jamaica, Australia, even Canada. No, you know, these names didn't come to mind. I think that that isn't, and that's not an accident, and that's not people's own failings. That's a product of that structural amnesia that's been built into how we understand Great Britain today, because there is that separation between the global scope of the British Empire and the British story as it exists in the mainland. I want to really underline a point you just made. You write in the book, quote, Today we think of colonialism as this bloodstained history of conflicts between nations or even a clash of races. However, it was to a large extent a corporate endeavor, as with private companies serving as makeshift state governments across the world. This is really just worth pausing to emphasize. We've touched on it a few times, but it's extremely dramatic in the British case. How how did the East India and Royal Niger Company and other many other such companies work as a form of political, economic, and military governance that exercise power through spreading and enforcing the hallowed British right to contract? Yeah, I think that this is something that I really wanted to spend a little bit of time on. You know, I structure the book, you know, by looking at the way in which imperialism informed all of these kind of material concepts that really govern and border our society from the state to the company to the idea of tax. You know, these are the the categories that I write upon. And this idea of the company, I think, is so crucial in the British story more than anywhere else because... I think, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think Britain really perfected the practice of employing essentially private companies to do the dirty work of British state interests, um, whilst also these companies becoming incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful themselves. I think that the relationship between the state and the company in British imperialism is, is something that it's quite hard to really 
ascertained from our from our modern um, purview, um, because we often think about this this conflictual relationship between the state and the company. We often think about um, the way in which um, private corporations you know, incorporate themselves and come into being today is very different from how it was when we think about the moment, especially the early moment of British imperialism. When you look a little bit closer, you can see that the the interplay, the interconnection between the state and these companies, although they were ostensibly private, is a, is much closer than, than than we've come to understand in our current moment. Um, these companies would only be created through a royal charter, so they would request the, the the blessing of the state, which would often grant them a monopoly over trade in a particular area, you know, like with the Royal Niger Royal Africa Company, with the slave trade in West Africa, the Royal Niger Company later on, um, in what we now call Nigeria, which is obviously name derived from 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 the same company's projects. The Hudson Bay Company, you know, over the the east coast of, of North America, these companies would then emerge as not only incredibly rich and incredibly powerful institutions, but also would take on a lot of the practices of state governance in the colonial territories. You know, they would run their own courts. They would have their own militaries. You know, when we think about the East India Company and the history of the East India Company, you know, this is a ostensibly private company that at the, at the turn of the 18th century had a, a military force that was larger than any nation state could boast in that contemporary moment. Um, you know, if we look at, you know, we read the work of people like William Dalrymple, um, who's really looked at the state. We look at Philip Stern and his understanding of what he calls it, the company state, um, I think is, uh, you know, that's that's the phrase that he speaks about to show this this relationship between private corporate interests and functions of state governance, we can see the way in which the role of places like the East India Company allowed for a particular emergence of of corporate power and therefore redirected the trajectory of global capitalism as it would then emerge over the next following centuries. And so I think spending time with these companies, I think, allowed me to really make that connection that I was trying to make between the material interests of empire, this um, central role that empire plays. Of course, empire is a, you know, a complete social project. It re- requires a cultural element um, in order to elevate the, the ideology of the imperial heartland. It requires a racial element in order to dehumanize and devalue the local populations in order to extract their wealth from them. It requires a kind of, you know, immediate violent element in terms of massacres and famines and, and you know, depopulation projects. But staying with these companies, staying with that conveyor belt of British companies that stretches from the Moscovian Levant Company all the way to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, I think really allowed me to show that connection between the emergence of global capitalism and the history of the British Empire. You write that that British common sense whipsawed from this ironclad commitment to empire to, in, in the wake of decolonization, a denial that empire had ever mattered at all. And no one, you write, better exemplifies that whiplash between imperialist fervor and the post-colonial disavowal of the empire's importance or even of its existence than the infamous British politician Enoch Powell. You write that, quote, 
His name is now synonymous with the Rivers of Blood speech that brought his serious political career to a stuttering halt in 1968, placing Powell in the rogues gallery of far-right, explicitly racist British politicians. And the speech, for listeners who aren't familiar, was, as the title suggests, an infamously racist one named for its line warning that mass immigration to England would create American-style racial conflict that would make rivers foam with blood. The black man will have the whip hand over the white man. It almost passes belief that at this moment, 20 to 30 additional immigrant children are arriving from overseas in Wolverhampton alone every week. And that means 15 or 20 additional families a decade or so hence. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. But for much of his career, Powell was a leading Tory proponent of empire, a a believer that, you write, quote, in the widest sense, the nation is the empire. This is a big question, but, but who was Powell, and how did he manage to pivot from this fervent embrace of empire to a rabidly xenophobic denial of its existence? And, and what does that, that pivot reveal? So I think, you know, another interesting part of the research for this book was definitely spending a lot of time with, with Enoch Powell. You know, I now have on my bookshelf a whole Enoch Powell row. So, you know, I worry when people come round to the house if I'm not in, because I can't, it's difficult to, you know, not just, you know, his kind of main biographies, but some really niche you know, stuff, um, you know, saving a free society, you know, Britain, a nation not afraid. Um, but I think also one thing that is really useful for that is it did allow me to really see the scope of Powell as a, uh, in terms of his contribution to the emergence of what, in, well, you know, what we would call neoliberalism in Britain, as well as his particular role in the amnesia and denial of empire that comes um, following decolonization. And so a little bit about Enoch Powell. So, you know, Enoch Powell was a classicist um, who was seen as, a, as, as an exceptional young scholar who, during the course of the war, was able to tour much of the empire stretching from Egypt to India, where he particularly had a, 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 an incredible romantic relationship with the Indian continent um, during his time there, was, was, was said by his biographer Simon Heffer to, to feel almost more Indian than he felt British by the time that he left would dress in the kind of traditional robes and, you know, kind of present himself as a, as a viceroy in the making. And, you know, crucially wrote uh, in terms of, uh, of of his own writings, his belief that the axis of British global power was not in London, but was actually in Delhi, was actually in India, that as long as Britain had British India, Britain remained a global power that did not have to take command from the United States or from Russia or any of the other powers. But once it would lose India, then it would become a parochial and provincial nation state. Um, and so when Indian independence eventually emerges uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, Powell is said to have been so devastated that he wanders the streets of, of, of London for a whole night in the state of shock and despair. You know, he leaves the Conservative Party, one of his very early, many 
departures from the Conservative Party leaves Winston Churchill's um, shadow government because of its refusal to stand up to Atlee's um, granting of independence to 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 India. Um, so the kind of visceral devastation that Powell felt at the loss of the British Empire over the next couple of decades really metastasizes into a hatred and hostility towards the post-war waves of immigrations that were coming from the colonies, from Jamaica and Barbados, you know, the Windrush, uh, a ship that, that, that arrived from Jamaica and gave that entire generation of migrants its kind of moniker as the Windrush generation, but also coming from India, from recently created Pakistan, from all these different parts of what was once the British Empire to take roles in the in the emerging British nation, um, welfare state, um, you know, to work in the NHS hospitals, to work on the rails, to take up a lot of these public sector jobs that allowed for the rebuilding of post-war Britain. Powell sees this as a great threat and a great challenge to the authentic English nation that he believes has existed on this mainland, as he describes in um, A Nation Not Afraid, um, for a thousand years or more. Um, This kind of unbroken line of insular um, people um, that stretch back through time immemorial. And he sees the imposition of an alien culture, even though this is the same culture that he was enamored with when he was in India, he now sees the imposition of that culture in places like Wolverhampton, where he's an MP, in places like Birmingham, where he gives the Rivers of Blood speech as being this essentially spark for for internal civil war in, in, in the United Kingdom. And so, you know, it gives the Rivers of Blood speech, but what I tried to do in the book as well was talk about his response to the shrinking and, and reduction of, of Britain, which is often ignored. And uh, a lot of his his response to that was to lean on the economic apparatus that governed the British Empire to allow Britain to be um, one of the great drivers of financial finance capital as it emerged in the latter half of the 20th century. Yeah, be- because while he was a committed xenophobe, he was extremely committed to the free movement of capital. He was a leading parliamentary advocate for the, the Hayekian Institute for Economic Affairs. And it was just a few months, you write, after the Rivers of Blood speech that he addressed the Mont Pelerin Society, the, the preeminent neoliberal economics forum, to deliver a speech attacking the bread and wood systems, fixed exchange rates and capital controls. Why is that part of Powell's career so often elided? And what, and what do we see that is otherwise obscured when as you suggest, we read those two speeches together. The way in which Powell's economic legacy has been buried and hidden, I think, is a lot to do with how mainstream and how normalized it became in the decades, you know, after he is expelled from the Conservative Party for the for the Rivers of Blood speech, which is seen as, you know, simply too incendiary even for a government that at the same time was implementing immigration controls that try to do, you know, essentially the same sort of of differentiating between black and white subjects of 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 the empire. You know, the Conservative Party expels Powell. And like I mentioned in the book, you know, Powell kind of gets included within this 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 rogues gallery of far-right racist politicians in Britain, you know, that stretch from Oswald Mosley to kind of Nick Griffin and 
Nigel Farage in the contemporary moment. And all these figures are seen as, you know, essentially kind of marginal, you know, tied into this understanding that Britain would never eventually lead to or fall, you know, fall in with an explicitly racist kind of fascist understanding of political government. But Powell was far more influential than any of these people that he's now grouped with. You know, he was a minister of state, you know, in multiple governments. He was seen as a prime minister and waiting for many years. And his um, economic legacy was one of the great influences on Margaret Thatcher. You know, in many ways, Powell is really Britain's first neoliberal prime minister. You know, there's a fantastic article by Professor Robbie Shilliam that really maps this out. Because at the time that Powell is working with the Institute of Economic Affairs, with Ralph Harris and Arthur Seldon and Anthony Fisher and all of the, the same intellectual milieu that would be Thatcher's inspiration, the people she would write to to thank them for all the support that they'd, they'd done to make her premiership possible, Powell was working with them in the 1960s, at the time when the early 1960s, when the post-war consensus seemed unbeatable, you know, Decades before Thatcher then emerges in 79 to take the premiership, Powell is advocating for privatisation, advocating for tax cuts, advocating for, like you mentioned, a um, uh, defeat of the the idea of a fixed exchange rate and the imposition of capital controls to stop the movement of, of money and capital across borders or to limit and control it. And so Powell is doing this at a time in which the Institute of Economic Affairs is seen as very marginal as, a, as an institution. And his championing of them really mainstreamed them and elevated them in the political discourse in Britain in the 20th century. And so this element of Powell has really been erased, I think, because it's become so normalized and so standardized. And I think what happens when we blur those two, when we blur the rivers of blood speech, Powell with the fixed exchange rate speech power, which he gives, you know, just a few months later to the Montpellier Society, Friedrich Hayek at one point described Enoch Powell as our only hope in Britain. Um, when we blur those two elements together, we start to see how the bordering of the world following decolonization and the challenge that it posed, um, the way in which understandings of differences between people was synthesized with immigration controls and policing of borders and all the racialized violence that, you know, fantastic scholars like um, Nadine Nani has described in her book, Bordering Britain. These are completely coupled with and embedded with repurposing of capital fluidity across the globe and what we would often described as neoliberalism, this re-emergence of finance capitalism, this re-emergence of global movements of trade that happened over the from the 1970s you know until the modern moment these two things um function in collaboration with each other i say in the book essentially you know powell's position was you know borders for people not for capital and i think we can see the consequences of that um all around us today yeah it, it, it's really notable how powell's xenophobia and neoliberalism connected to one another because the way that neoliberalism drives people insane today is so often expressed as xenophobia. What what we saw early on with Powell has become, amid this moment's profound felt lack of sovereignty, of control. After all, Brexit's slogan was take back control. This perceived lack of sovereignty that was created by the very same political and economic forces that Powell championed, the way 
that's expressed is often on the right is through this fantasy that what's going on is akin to the colonization of the metropole. Mm -hmm. And in that framework, migrants emerge as the sort of uncanny ghost of empire who must be refigured as a colonizer to not only legitimate their stigmatization, abuse, exploitation, expulsion, but also to facilitate this fantasy that Brexit-style nationalism can indeed take back control. And I just think it's really notable that with the great the idea of the Great Replacement, or here in the U.S., the, the Reconquista, it's really remarkable how, per, how pervasive colonialist metaphors are, colonial metaphors are, in xenophobic discourse. No, absolutely. I think, you know, that figment and paranoia around the figure of, of, of the colonial angel of revenge that, you know, you hear in Grace Replacement theories and, and, and the other such like is something that is really remarkable in, in, in Powell's work, you know, when you read the Rivers of Blood speech, you know, it has that really, really haunting phrase where he describes how, you know, in the future in Britain, the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. And I think that is as, <laughs> as, as, as perfect and acute an example of that, of, 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 of the anxiety and fear around what will be the blowback of, of all this violence, all this blood, all this horror that, British companies and institutions have visited upon people in the colonies, you know, the, the whip will be reversed in its hand. And so I think that we can see how central that all is in Powell's workings, but we can also see how the relationship between the fear and paranoia of the migrant, you know, now collaborates with the excesses of precariety that neoliberalism visits upon populations, particularly with the gutting of the industrial heartlands in, you know, places like the north of England where I'm from in, or in, in, in America, you know, think about the Rust Belt, the, the, the American South. This gutting of the industrial heartland creates further surplus populations amongst populations that are told by the rhetoric of, of race, of Oh, the, of a particular value being inherent in their in their peoples, and therefore the 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 devastation of that is redirected, and the anger that comes from that devastation of that, understandably, is redirected towards migrants, allowing that xenophobia and that financialization to work in tandem with each other. So I think that returning to Powell gives us a, a you know a kind of profit of that 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 two sided attack of the, the, the post-imperial interests of global capitalism in the body of, of one particular person. One thing that this whole Brexit take-back-control politics obscures is that the very same conservative MPs who would later staff Boris Johnson's Brexiteer cabinet have, for at least a decade, argued that the UK needed to learn lessons from India, be more like India, because British workers had become, quote, among the worst idlers in the world. But you write that the model that the Tory elite really hold in the highest esteem is Singapore. And this is also true on the American far right, actually, um, with the kind of dark enlightenment, Blake Masters, uh, Peter Thiel types. But that's an aside. But Singapore, the, the authoritarian state capitalist city state. How did Singapore, whose, whose founding leader, Lee Kuan Yew, was, was initially a radical during the independence struggle, how did Singapore manage these contradictions of post-colonial sovereignty 
by becoming a a so-called global city in the newly reconfigured capitalist world system. And then what does that economic political system and Brexiteers' enthusiasm for it reveal about conservative politics and specifically its vision of London as the so-called Singapore on Thames? I think first of all, we could start with the the quote from um, Britannia Unchained, um, where you talk about this this understanding of a particular uh, energetic young Tory elite looking for Britain to learn the lessons of the of the colonies. This book is written in 2012 by a group of then unknown um, backbench MPs, um, who would then later form the backbone of Boris Johnson's government, Kwesi Kwarteng, um, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, Dominic Raab. Um, and, you know, in terms of significance, one of the authors is also very likely to be the next British Prime Minister, um, Liz Truss, as well as Chris Gidmore. And so what this book says about the vision of the people who have their hands upon the instruments of state of the United Kingdom, I think, is something that's really useful. And in this book, they openly describe the remnants of the post-war welfare state that continue to provide some form of social safety net for people in Britain, although increasingly, increasingly um, a threadbare. They describe that as, you know, one of the great obstacles towards British entrepreneurialism and British drive. The idea that if life was as precarious and as and as and 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 as um, desperate as you might find it in in countries from um, South Asia to Africa to Latin America, then. British workers wouldn't be so comfortable with their, you know, pensions and their maternity leaves and their, you know, their their sick pay and would be much more industrious, you know, no longer being the idlers of the world. And I think that this is part of the the kind of romance narrative that the the, the British right have concocted around um, Singapore's distinctive post-colonial history. It's this idea that, you know, Singapore is almost, you know, the one child that made it, the child that listened, you know, all these others, you know, went the wrong path, you know, electing radical governments and, you know, challenging the legacies of of imperial rule. But Singapore, you know, listened to the lessons of of British free marketeerism, listened to the um, legacy of the English common law system and created this kind of financial heartland and it's been rewarded for it in terms of rising living standards and, you know, rising political significance in terms of the globe. And I think that, you know, whilst very interesting, this narrative is is very much the the figmatization and romanticization of the British right rather than the real story of of what we understand to have been the 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 role of people like Lee Kuan Yew, people like Radhan Ratnam, um, one of his main lieutenants, in cultivating Singapore's position as what Ragnaratnam describes, you know, in the 1970s, way before we started using this term to describe London and New York and Mumbai and Johannesburg, Ragnaratnam describes Singapore as being a global city. Um, This is a, or trying to become a global city, set the example for a global city. This idea really emerges from a kind of assessment of Singapore's particular vulnerabilities and position in an international order that is primarily made up by the interests of nation states. Singapore recognizes that as a 
as a small city-state surrounded by uh, much larger, sometimes hostile neighbors, you know, in terms of Indonesia and Malaysia, that, you know, uh, the usual gifts of state sovereignhood, the right to have your own military, the right to be able to exert sovereignty over your own jurisdiction, wouldn't really be sufficient in order to counter the potential hostilities that it might get, you know, from the Malaysian Federation that has just left. And so it is one of the, you know, people like Lee Kuan Yew is, in terms of his political allegiances when he emerges, you know, he emerges primarily from the labor movement as a labor lawyer, um, goes to prison, you know, is, is in collaboration with, you know, communists essentially in his decolonization moment. And even when he emerges into governance, when he obviously clamps down on that pretty aggressively, but Singapore also takes a role and a place in the kind of, non-aligned movement that emerged, you know, from what we then call the third world in the in the 20th century, you know, from the Bangdon Conference 55, you know, the Tricontinental Conference, all these other spaces where the countries of the former colonized world come together to try and reimagine their future. Um, Singapore is a presence in these in, in, in these in these arenas. Lee Kuan Yew was a great admirer and friend of a figure like Kwame Nkrumah, the the first president of a of of a Black African nation state in Ghana, you know, and someone who is kind of now memorialized very differently to Lee Kuan Yew, you know, someone who was a radical, someone who fell in league with the Soviet Union, somebody you know who was a danger to um, a former British colony and had to be removed from power. So, despite their differences that we might think of them as, you know, they were actual in correspondence with each other, would visit each other considered themselves to be friends and and Lee Kuan Yew showed great sympathy for Nkrumah's project, but recognized the impossibilities of it within Singapore and the opportunities of being a, a place in which finance capital could center itself, you know, the emergence of CIMEX, uh, the Singapore Exchange Rate, and the, 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 the encouragement of transnational capital to invest and um, place its, its wealth within Singapore was one of the ways in which it emerged as a, as, as a, as a nation state um, in the latter half of the 20th century. But I think that, the, like I say, this, of course, the, the project is more complicated than I could, you know, describe in the time we have here. Um, but I think one thing we can really recognize is the, the difference between the reality of what happened in post-war Singapore and, and, and the romantic story that we're told by the British conservative right today is, you know, the role of kind of, of the state in, in the emergence of Singapore in, in, you know, state investment companies that invest in land and allow for the development, you know, also the authoritarian role of the state in terms of clamping down on, 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 you know, public acts that it finds disagreeable. This weaponization of state power is ignored when people like a Daniel Hanan, you know, or uh, Jeremy Hunt will talk about the way in which the, the Singapore miracle shows the inherent truth of a kind of stateless free market society that will allow for greater riches for everybody. And when we talk about this idea of Singapore Untamed, which really emerged during the Brexit debates of 2016 and was advocated not just by Brexit politicians, by, you know, some of the, the wealthy financial backers that were really driving um, the Brexit moment, Peter Hargreaves and, and others, is the idea that Britain should repurpose itself as a low-tax, low-regulation, 
open door, free ports all over the place where finance capital can come and essentially profit from without having to face any of the democratic demands of a, of a sovereign government. And so I think that tells us about some of the interests and visions of global capitalism for the 21st century by many of the people on the Tory right when we think about their romanticization of their understanding of Singapore's distinctive post-colonial history. And yet that is not exactly how the Brexit campaign was framed. What's remarkable about all this is that the, that Brexit was dressed up as a campaign for the left-behind British periphery to take back control, not only from, from Brussels, but from London. All, all the while, what elite Tory Brexiteers wanted was to make London even more like Singapore, more of a cosmopolitan capitalist dystopia. You write, quote, in many ways, the Brexit vote tapped into the resentment towards London felt in much of the rest of the country. For years, Britain's almost wholly London-based media has presented London as too rich, too cosmopolitan, too removed from the country that it is located within. It had become a cipher for all the forces of globalization. And then the EU referendum arrived, presented by some of its advocates as a referendum on globalization. In truth, many of Brexit's architects always saw it as an opportunity to accelerate globalization, only this time with their own hands more firmly placed on the levers. Their promise that Brexit would allow Britain to take back control was one they were making not to voters, but to themselves. There, one could really engage in some sort of sophisticated analysis of what's going on here, but it just seems cynical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I mean, cynicism is not in short supply in British politics, as I'm sure it's not in, in the US as well. I think that it's a, it's a recognition that there needed to be some way to engage with the anger that deindustrialization, neoliberalism, and the increasing precariety of life within huge swathes of the British of the British mainland, how that was how that was going to manifest politically, you know, and that framing of take back control, you know, you have to give Mr. Cummings is due. It was, you know, a fantastic way to tap into not just this feeling of loss of control, loss of the ability to organize your society and your economy in a way that you might consider fair, equitable, and, and, you know, in benefit to your own interests if you're an everyday British person, but also tapping into that nostalgia, that myth, that story of what Britain used to be and what it once had its hands on the levers of control by adding that idea of taking back control. You know, it never says, you know, when did we have control, but it leaves it there to be filled in by the, the like I say, the, the traditional narrative of Britain, which is that it was this insulated, bordered, contained nation state that once was very powerful, very rich, and, you know, everybody picked apples from the trees, but somehow this has all been taken away by the EU, by immigrants, by globalization, all these different moving targets. And so that allowed for a redirection of, of that anger towards the way in which neoliberalization has, has cut away the, the quality of life you know, and the standard of living in huge parts of Britain year upon year, and, you know, accelerating even more so in the current cost of living crisis, taking that anger and, 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 and place it in a political project that in the long term might facilitate 
um, greater centralization and concentration of, of power in the hands of those who have really benefited from neoliberalization, which is, of course, finance capital and the industries that orbit it and service it. Um, here we can think about corporate lawyers, we can think about accountants, you know, all of these institutions that in the city of London, its own strange offshore um, financial centre within the broader city of London, within the broader nation of the United Kingdom, within the broader legacy of the British Empire with its overseas territories and the Caymans and the BVI and the Bermuda. This this core community uh, are likely to be the, the greater beneficiaries of people's desire and people's drive to so-called take back control. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Phenomenal World, a publication run out of the Jane Family Institute that puts out rigorous and clarifying research and writing to help you understand the complexities of the global political economy. Phenomenal World has featured many excellent dig guests like Tim Barker, Melinda Cooper, Femi Taiwo, Daniela Gabor, and Isabella Weber. If you're looking for deep analysis of things like the politics of monetary policy, the relationship between financial capital and development in the global south, how organized labor lost the construction industry, how the IMF is making it hard for poor countries to decarbonize, the way U.S. dollar hegemony shapes global politics, and so much more. Visit phenomenalworld.org and subscribe to get their original articles and their weekly newsletters of relevant research and writing. That's phenomenalworld.org. Head there to read and subscribe. I'm ad-libbing this into the ad, but so you know, it is a really good publication and I will put a link in the show notes. I want to turn to the history of colonized countries struggling to seize real power amid decolonization, starting with Iran, which was part, you write, of Britain's informal empire, an empire that extended well beyond formal colonial holdings. British Petroleum, now now BP, was, was founded as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company after a British businessman struck oil in 1908, backed conveniently by British troops and a sweetheart deal with the Shah. That all changed when Mohammed Mossadegh was elected prime minister and what was then called the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company refused to renegotiate the Shah's deal. In, in response, Mossadegh seized the company's assets, even though he still pledged to pay the company 25% of its profits as, as compensation. You write, quote, his justification for this action was that if sovereignty was going to mean anything in the new world of nations, then the oil produced on land within the sovereign state of Iran belonged first and foremost to the people of Iran. And many listeners know what happened. Next, Britain saw things otherwise and, working with the United States, orchestrated a coup that overthrew Mossadegh. And yet, what listeners might not know that you talk about in some detail in this book is that the British government that first began to put the squeeze on Mossadegh in the lead-up to the coup was the same government that instituted Britain's post-war welfare state, Prime Minister Clement Attlee's labor government, which famously created the National Health Service, you know, a, a, a marvel of social democracy that we can't even imagine creating in the United States, expanded council housing, and perhaps more to the point, nationalized the UK's gas, electricity, coal, 
and railway industries. What accounts for that incredible and bloody double standard? And what what does that double standard reveal? Because as famed neoliberal Ludwig von Mises pointed out, quote, if it is right for the British to nationalize the British coal mines, it cannot be wrong for the Iranians to nationalize the Iranian oil industry. And yet, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to mention that for von Mises, the, the, the way to resolve that contradiction was, of course, for the British to also not nationalize. <laughs> you know, he wasn't advocating, so surprisingly, for, for allowing the Iranians to nationalize their oil fields. Um, but I think that when, yeah, when we're talking about the double standards of the Atlee government, you know, this is the Atlee government is absolutely revered on the British left. Um, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the romanticization of nostalgia, um, it, you know, rarely becomes, it really comes more clearly than in the the the, the short, you know, one-term governance of, of the Attlee government um, because of what it did so much. You know, The Spirit of 45 is a, is a Ken Loach movie that, again, really, you know, cinematically captures the, the nostalgia and, and romance and admiration for the Attlee government because of all the achievements that you mentioned and I, and I laid out in the book, the National Health, you know, the NHS and the imposition of kind of social security payments and the building of council houses and, and you know, all, all of that, all of that, that framework that was supposed to provide that safety net for, for everyone in Britain to be able to survive the rises and falls and speculative dis- disturbance uh, uh, of of the movement of capitalism, but it did so with a a, a gaping blind spot in my in my eyes and a myopia, which was um, how would capital operate and move overseas, um, particularly in the in the then you know disappearing hinterlands of, of British imperial rule, which included you know the formal empire, informal empire of what Mossadegh, you know, by the time Mossadegh was was firmly referred to as Iran, you know, when we talk about the informal empire, we're talking about places like, you know, Argentina and Hong Kong and China, you know, these places that weren't formal British territories, but Britain wielded huge economic and political government, uh, governance in, in these areas. And yeah, the um, they were the government that was in charge at the time of Mossadegh's initial seizure of the of the, the company territories, the oil refineries of the Anglo Iranian Oil Company um, in the Abadan region of Iran, and their response was incredibly hostile. You know, we whilst they weren't the government that eventually got the coup d'état over the board by then. Winston Churchill had been re-elected and, um, you know, with his own personal connections, he was once a lobbyist for the Anglo-Iranian oil company that made that coup d'etat all the more smoother. But the Attlee government pursued a UN security resolution to be able to legitimize a war on Iran. Um, it froze the accounts of Iranian citizens in the United Kingdom. It took the um, Iranian state to the ICJ to, you know, try to have Iran held accountable in an in internationally newly established international court for having breached international law by exercising the same kind of nationalization strategies that the Adelaide government themselves were implementing right in the United Kingdom. The ICJ actually used that outsourcing private-public separation between the British state and the British colonial companies kind of against itself, where they 
you know, offered a judgment that said this is a court that's been set up for um, conflicts between nation states. And this doesn't seem to be a conflict between nation states. It seems to be a conflict between one nation state, Iran, and a private company. So it's not in our jurisdiction, um, which, you know, because of the relationship between the British state and the Anglo-Iranian oil company, you know, had a certain ironic punch to it. I think that, you know, the reason why there was that blind spot, I think, is, is to do with the way in which there was a higher, you know, hierarchy that existed between the interests of working people in the global north, in the colonial metropole, in the heart of empire, in the United Kingdom, and the interests of working people in Asia, Africa, and, and what we now call the global south. And the Ali government were as seduced by this um, hierarchy as anybody else. And I think that one of the great tragedies of the Ali government is that it's very myopia towards the empowerment of transnational capital in the colonies, of you know the support of places like, you know, companies like the Anglo-Iranian oil company in places like Iran is what has led to the disintegration and the carving out of the welfare state that had worked so hard to impose right in the United Kingdom. In the book, I describe the um, the phenomenon as equivalent to um, the Atlee government trying to trying to get a new dog and train this new dog within the house and being like, in the house, you know, you now have to, you know, don't bite the sofa and rip it all up. Don't, you know, make sure that when you go to the toilet, you go to the toilet in that specific little pot over there, you know, don't attack the kids or whatever you might say to them in the house, but then say, but listen, when you're out the house, buy whoever you want, you know what I mean? Just go wild. Shit all over the do place. Do whatever you want. <laughs> exactly. You feel free, you know, that's what you can do. And it's now surprised that, you know, it has a, a shitting dog inside its own house. And when we look at what, you know, right up until the current moment of the, of the cost of living crisis, you know, that same company that the Atlee and Churchill government did so much to protect against the Mossadegh government, the Anglo-Iranian oil company, then, you know, following a, a rebrand after a little international scandal, became British Petroleum and is now, of course, BP. And I say in the book, you know, what has been the benefit for the everyday British person of the support of BP against, you know, a social democratic government like Mossadegh? BP is constantly cited as one of the Britain's most consistent, you know, tax avoiding firms, often getting a tax rebate despite its massive profits that it's been received. But they've moved beyond petroleum. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. They are now, you know, <laughs> the, the forepoint of green energy. Um, but in the midst of this this energy crisis, where you know huge arrays of the the British population are um, seeing the cost of heating their homes rise month on month to the point that it's unsustainable and unaffordable. Um, BP announcing record profits and the chief executive is describing the energy crisis as having turned his um, company into, and I quote, a cash machine. And so, you know, the, the, the legacy of these companies, and we can also talk about, you know, the environmental um, disasters that BP has been responsible for in its relationship with accelerating climate change, the legacies of protecting these companies, I think, um, are something that working people in the United Kingdom um, are starting to reckon with a little bit more clearly, but not often connecting it with that history um, of how they emerged in the colonial moments. And I try and do a little bit of that in the book. You write about Jamaican Prime Minister Michael Manley, who, who first took office in 1972, a decade after independence ended 300 years of British rule. In his time, he was 
among the world's most prominent third worldists, a part of a movement that made it clear, as you write, that, quote, decolonization wasn't just another administrative step along the linear path of development. Instead, it represented a struggle to remake the world. By the time I, I was growing up in Washington, D.C. in the 1990s, third world was, if I recall correctly, pretty much a derogatory term. But but in reality, it was this comprehensive revolutionary movement to transform everything. This was really crystallized in Manley's push for the New International Economic Order, or NIEO, something I discussed at, at length in a previous ep- episode with, with Adam Getachew. And among many things, what the NIEO was was a recognition that sovereignty wasn't enough, that in fact, sovereignty could be a bit of a trap. What lessons had Manley learned from post-colonial history up to that point, from, from experiences, for example, like that of Kwame Nkrumah in, in Ghana? What, what problems had he identified and what was his vision for overcoming them? Manley and the particular post-colonial history of Jamaica is something that I think is really central to understanding how capitalism and neoliberalism really adapts in the latter half of the 20th century. It's one that Jamaica is one of the more familiar former colonies to everyday people in Britain. It's usually um, one of the main um, holiday destinations in terms of actually listed holiday destinations that British people go on every year, you know, after places in Europe and the United States, it's usually Jamaica after that. So it's a place that's familiar, culturally familiar. Um, Jamaica's played a very central role in kind of post-colonial British culture from the Nonhill Carnival to music to, you know, huge, huge swathes of, of popular culture. But we have such an ignorance about its political and its economic history and how central that is to the way in which capitalism changed over the, the, the past few decades. And Michael Manley, I really drew on as a figure to really tell this story. You know, I think he's a you know fascinating figure, you know, married five times, former RAF, you know, World War II pilot. So he's interesting in, in, his, in his own right. But his campaign or the, the campaign that he championed for, for his first terms in office of trying to advance a new international economic order and allow for the numerical advantage that the post-colonial states had had accumulated in institutions like the United Nations, you know, as more and more states went through decolonization, it was clear that in arenas like the UN General Assembly, where every state has one vote, the decolonial states actually had the numerical advantage. And so there was a drafting of a resolution called the New International Economic Order, and a lot of people have written on this, you know, as you mentioned, I don't get to choose world making after empire is fantastic on on this history of of of, of manly and you know in in this tradition of post colonial leaders who saw beyond the nation state and tried to use the that 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 kind of global panoramic view in order to remake the the post colonial world um the new international economic order I think is a great example of this moment where we get this u n resolution that in many ways still looks you know pretty radical today when you think about rights of food and permanent sovereignty over national resources, the controls on transnational corporations that's included within within the different provisions of the new international economic order you know there is a certain kind of like you know nostalgic tragedy that people now i think are are now looking at that that particular document which 
eventually never got implemented and never manifested in the way that Manley would have envisioned. It's seen as this kind of note to the to the failure of the third worldist project, which, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, stretched all the way from the kind of Nala Line movement of Bandung and Tricontinental, um, you know, all the way to the Cancun conference, the first North-South conference where the kind of third worldist moment kind of petered out in confrontation with a with a re-energized um, Atlantic right following the elections of Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom and Ronald Reagan in the United States. I think that we need to remember, like you mentioned, when we talk about third world in, in the contemporary age, it's seen as derogatory, dismissive, insulting, and you know, this has led to the disappearance of the term in kind of polite society. Now we're supposed to say the developing world, the global South. But at the time, you know, people like Manley really claimed the the, the moniker of, of third worldist, third worldism, as not just a description of countries that um, were neither part of the the capitalist first world and communist second world and that kind of tripartite structure, but also as this kind of imagining of another way the world could be, this third world, this 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 vision for a different way to organize society and organize the distribution and sharing of resources. Third worldism was something that people, you know, embraced even in, you know, in what we now call the global north. When we think about organizations like the Black Panther Party, when we think about um, in the United Kingdom, figures like, you know, Tariq Ali or in France, Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, they would have described themselves to a certain extent as third worldist in their orientation. And I think that a lot of that history has been lost um, over the past few decades. And, you know, going back to Michael Manley, going back to that moment, seeing how much of a challenge it posed to global capitalism, I think is really useful, particularly when we think about what then happened to Jamaica and the surrounding Caribbean islands over the next few decades. Yeah, I mean, as is obvious from the present state of the world system, Manley and his allies were were defeated. And, and they were defeated, of course, by neoliberalism. And what gave Thatcher, Reagan, and the broader forces of neoliberalism the power to defeat the NIEO, you write, was the third world debt crisis of the 1980s, something I want to do an entire episode on, too, because it's becoming very newly relevant again today as another third world debt crisis seems to be in the making. But how was that crisis created and then how briefly was it was it was it leveraged to crush the kind of transnational postcolonial world making ambitions of third worldism? Yeah, I think that we need to remember that, like, when we talk about the history of Jamaica, we are talking about the country that in many ways was the the real guinea pig for the weaponization of structural loan adjustment agreements and uh, structural adjustment programs. You know, Jamaica had signed more of those than almost every other net country in the world. And when we think about the, the, the gutting of Manley's domestic social democratic projects as well as his global third worldist project. We need to think about the way in which those structural adjustment agreements limited the actions that states could take within their own arena. So whilst Manley, you know, instituted a minimum wage, you know, decades before it was instituted in in the United Kingdom. Um, you know, was implementing the kind of housing and social security protections that we'd associate with the welfare state. Following the signing of 
the structural adjustment programs that came with conditions around privatization of property, around deregulation of um, access to markets, the creation of free ports, which Jamaica again also really advanced, led the advancement of the world and in the creation of the you know, the Kingston Free Zone and, and many others, and the, the kind of contemporary modern free, free port as, as we understand it, these different weapons carved out the, the sovereign space that Manly was, was, was relying upon in order to be able to kind of spearhead this challenge of new international economic order to the interests of global capitalism. And, you know, we can kind of see that in the response that Margaret Thatcher gives when she comes back to the United Kingdom following the Cancun conference, where the hopes for a new international economic order really dissolved and died out. Um, you know, Thatcher comes back really almost gloating um, to to the House of Commons, saying that we, you know, this, this, the requirement for this new structure of international law to allow for greater equity in trade between the global north and the global south. You know, this is just a fantasy, she says. Um, the idea of creating a kind of UN development bank um, was farcical because, in her words, you know, I'm not going to put British overdrafts into a bank that is held by people or controlled by people who are almost entirely in debt. Um, she talks about how, you know, this the kind of tragedy standard bootstrap mentality of how important it is for these countries to pick themselves up, not wait for handouts, and how the goal towards development is, of course, opening themselves up for foreign investment rather than collaborating together in order to try and impose restrictions and limits and controls on the, on the, on the levels of extractive capitalism that is visited upon them. And so... That is a, a part of Thatcher's global story that I think often gets ignored. So I, you know, kind of trace her, her time at the Cancun conference as part of this great neoliberal backlash against the interests of the third world and the way in which that then energized and, and encouraged her own privatization and her own imposition of, of, of a lot of these same terms in the United Kingdom, which people are more familiar with. That period of the the debt crisis, you write, also was really important because it was this moment that obscured the very history that we've been discussing. And in doing so, turned cause and effect on its head, emphasizing this pathologized third world as the cause of its own problems. You write, quote, the 1980s was the decade when the idea that Caribbean, Latin American, and especially African countries were corrupt, incompetent, and perpetually impoverished was fixed in the global imagination. How was it that the, the capitalist resolution to the crises of decolonization that we've been discussing not only defeated third worldism, but also obscured that very history of third worldism's defeat, absolving colonizing capitalist powers of what had been done to the third world, thereby replacing this old, explicitly racist colonial story of why some countries are rich and others are poor with a new, perhaps less explicitly racist account to re-legitimate global inequality, one that we see in place, I think, to, to this day. I think that the reason why it was so successful at at a kind of masking and, and, and reversing that, that, that relationship between cause and effect is because the response, the backlash, um, relied upon that older history 
of racial hierarchization um, uh, in addition to the kind of almost theological language of debt that we're also familiar with, um, you know, stretching back to Mephistopheles or, you know, to, to Genesis in the Bible. In relationship to the point about race, you know, the the images that then populated British TV screens over the 1980s, you know, as we start to get the emergence of you know, kind of charity TV, you know, comic relief, live aid, um, these images of poor, starving Africans um, struggling to survive uh, in devastated, supposedly independent nation states, I think also did play into narratives of racial backwardness and the idea that these populations are simply incapable of governing themselves. This is why Britain had to take this this uh, this kind of um, nurturing imperial role for so many centuries. You know, people like Powell describe British imperialism as a burden upon Britain itself, not an opportunity for wealth extraction, but, you know, this burden that it's reluctantly taking upon because these people are unable to govern themselves. Following the explosion of third world debt crisis and the, you know, the collapsing of independent governments into, into kind of ineffective authoritarianism, um, this was seen as confirmation for that that unspoken, um, now impolite um, racial history um, that said, well, these people are simply backwards, uncivilized, and really should have never been given the instruments of state. And now we can see the evidence of, upon that. I think that idea of blaming those same countries also then um, reconciles quite smoothly with our understandings of debt. You know, debt is and has been described this in, in so, you know, poetic terms in so much literature and theological writing, the way in which permanent relations of power can be justified indefinitely with the blame invested upon the, the person who is paying the debt rather than the person who is benefiting from debt, that debt. The, the greatest debt is is the one that can never be paid, and this is you know what third world debt has become with the interest rates escalating, the amount that's owed by nation states year upon year due to the conditions they will have agreed when they you know receive these these loans from the World Bank and the IMF um, in the 1980s, and so that idea of the the debt as being the responsibility of the individual paying the debt regardless of the unfairness of the terms that they've agreed, in addition to that that history of racial hierarchy that said particular people just aren't able to look after themselves, I think has combined to make the the relationship between cause and effect of the devastation of post-colonial countries in Africa and Asia, in addition to the tragic scenes that we were confronted with in that moment, to make those scenes the faults of the very people that, that were seen suffering. And once again, we see the boomerang because it's the same framework that allows underwater homeowners in the U.S. or after 2008 or the government of Greece to be pathologized as sinful, undeserving, and backward. No, absolutely. You know, those, those languages of debt and austerity and blame for cultural inability to manage finances, manage resources, manage your own standard of living um, has also been repurposed. You know, we saw that in the, particularly in Europe in the post-2008 demonization of the pigs countries, as it was described at that moment, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, um, who were finding themselves in sovereign debt crisis. You know, this was tied to ideas of 
Mediterranean culture and laissez-faire approaches towards industry, this 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 language can escape the the boundaries and borders of 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 the former colonial world, um, as you know, Cesare's boomerang helps us helps us see. To close out, as decolonization has become a too often empty, if constantly invoked, metaphor for many on the left, and then this culture war bogeyman on the right, what would a subsidive politics to decolonize Britain and the world look like? A politics that connected the left behind regions of deindustrialized Britain to, to the masses of Jamaica, Ghana, and India, rather than pitting them against one another? What what would a universalized social democratic or socialist project in the global north look like? What One that overcomes the Atlee government's myopic and ultimately really tragic approach? Or I guess to put the question one last way, why couldn't Corbynism successfully thread that needle? Well, I think that... Um you know, responding with a kind of substantive idea of decolonization, and only speak here primarily in the British term, because, you know, in the book I really try and trace how the idea that Britain was an empire, not a not a nation that had an empire, but was an empire that is now operating as a nation state, really helps us understand how its legal and financial institutions have emerged and molded themselves with this architecture of imperial extraction. And We've got very used to thinking about decolonization in symbolic and cultural and very broad and nebulous terms, you know, thinking about the decoloniality of power, thinking about the decoloniality of desire. And, you know, I'm not dismissing those urgent conversations. I think it's great how mainstream they've become over the last years. But, you know, as somebody who, for maybe my sins in a past life, maybe the debt that I'm paying, I teach in law school. And, um, I think that it's, uh, I think that it's bizarre that you can, you can go through an entire three year English law degree in the United Kingdom and not mention the word empire once, even if you're reading cases that have, that say in the cases, this has been decided in India or Australia or Canada. You can talk about, the way in which Britain's uncodified constitution distinguishes itself from almost every other nation state in the world without having any conversation around, is there anything different about Britain, how it emerged compared to other countries that have that kind of constitutional birthday, often due to independence from Britain themselves. You know, I think that when we try and make it practical and make it immediate, it can start to become a lot more politically tangible. So I think one of the most obvious kind of legal elements of decolonization that could be implemented in Britain is this idea of the removal of the non-DOM tax rule. This became kind of public debate recently when the other contender to be prime minister, Rishi Sunak, um, it it turned out that despite him being the (laughs) chancellor of the British Exchequer, his actual family, you know, registered as non-DOM essential tax exiles, which means non-DOM is something that was implemented during the age of British imperialism to encourage imperial entrepreneurialism by saying to people, the wealth that you accumulate and um, gain overseas, you won't have to pay tax um, to the British state, you know, unless it's remitted back back into Britain. So this encouraged people to go to, you know, Rhodesia and Botswana and Kenya and try and cultivate wealth because whatever wealth they, they cultivated there would be theirs and theirs alone. And this is a legacy of empire that continues to protect the interests of the global 1% in Britain in 2022. Um, you know, another thing is the 
status of, you know, the British overseas territories, um, you know, three of which are described by by the organization Tax Justice Network as the three leading corporate tax havens anywhere in the world. Here I'm talking about the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands and Bermuda. Now, these territories, you know, in Britain, again, we talk about them when they say, oh, a company has registered its profits in an offshore account in the Cayman Islands. It sounds like, you know, these distant, remote tropical islands that, you know, only James Bond could go and get that money back when, in fact... These places are British sovereign territory. They are as British sovereign territory as Sheffield or Scunthorpe or Newcastle. Um, Westminster holds ultimate sovereignty over these areas and has shown historically that when it's in the interest of the government, they can intervene in these territories in very dramatic and direct ways. You know, look at the history of the Chagos Islands, to, to say none the least, where, you know, entire population was kicked off these islands because Britain wanted to turn them into a military base to sell to America. So if Britain wanted to, it could implement, you know, really um, direct action in these in these places to remove their offshore protections for global capitalism, um, to take away that kind of mask of secrecy that so many companies and wealthy individuals place upon themselves by investing their assets, you know, in secret accounts in these territories, um, and this would be a step towards kind of substantive decolonization. This would be an explainer for, I think, lots of people. This this broader conversation around the offshore nature of Britain, I think, could make clear for so many people why Britain remains um, the kind of choice of destination, particularly London, for so many um, wealthy oligarchs all around the world. You know, the time of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, suddenly British politics was like, oh, why do we have, you know, so many... <laughs> You know, Russian oil, do they maybe just like the weather? It's like, no, it's because of the way in which the the architecture of British imperialism, you know, is set up to facilitate and protect um, wealth extraction, regardless of how how violent the, the origins of that wealth might be. And so I think, you know, actions like this, you know, steps like this, I think would have great potential for unifying the interests of the kind of so-called left behind, the interests of, you know, racial minority communities who face the kind of visible and violent legacies of empire on a daily basis, and the interests of the the broader general public, which is really facing the, the sharp end of escalating wealth inequality, increasing insecurity of labor, increasing precariety of life that is spreading across not just what we used to call the former colony, colonial world, the global south, but even in the heart of the former imperial world, um, the United Kingdom itself. It seems like precisely the shortcomings and contradictions of the Attlee government that ultimately undermined not only did so much damage to the third world, but ultimately undermined their own social democratic project in at home in Britain, that... Corbynism really was tr- trying to square that circle and thread that needle. Why didn't it succeed? Um, so I think that Corbynism might have tried to to take those actions in terms of basically including racial minority populations in this broader understanding of British history and thinking about Britain's foreign policy role in terms of increased militarism across the board. 
but I don't think it was able to really mainstream conversations around Britain's imperial legacy in terms of its legal and financial apparatus. It didn't normalise, you know, understandings of why London Commercial Court is the um, jurisdiction of choice for corporate, you know, corporate disputes all around the world. 70% of cases in the London Commercial Court, you know, are concerning companies that neither of which are registered in any British jurisdiction because of the way the English common law system has been has emerged through capitalism to be perhaps the most protective in terms of the interests of private private corporations anywhere in the world. You know, this idea of the English common law system being, as Katrina Pistor says, the code of capitalism. You know, Corbynism, I don't think really, yeah, normalised understandings of British overseas territories and just the way in which the legacy and aftermath of, of British imperialism contributes towards the wealth inequality that so many people are wrestling with today. And I think that that's a, that's a space, particularly in this context of the cost of living crisis at the same time of escalating corporate profits and the aftermath of you know that COVID boom for so many companies around the world. I think this is a real moment to maybe put those connections a little bit more forcefully into the public domain. I mean, this is the big the big challenge for the U.S. left as well. Like, how do we change the channel from culture war to class war when the right can keep everyone so fixated on whether the BBC is going to allow people to sing imperial patriotic anthems like Rule Britannia? Absolutely. It's turned out to be tough. Yeah. <laughs> Kojo Karam, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Kojo Karam is an academic at Birkbeck College, University of London, and the author of Uncommonwealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the discovery of gold and silver in the America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in minds of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Demus Frankel. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, same on Facebook, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or some such site, please take a moment to leave a nice review. Those reviews and ratings help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you just telling people that you know to try listening to the podcast because it is so good. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.